In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain, one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. Or more accurately, this sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians in Taos. And this mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also in some way a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out on this mountain and take it in, in every season, any time of the day or night, on any day of the year, as it's clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain falls on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All forms, sorts of forms of life live, born, live, and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering, the mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is an alive energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relation to the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that is intricately and intimately connected to it. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling onto isn't attached to anything. We might say it lets life live through it, holding on to nothing. There, in truth, being no thing even possible to hold on to. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality, and balance. This evening's talk is the last in the series of our Touching into the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. This quality or factor of enlightenment, equanimity, upekka in Pali, was the final factor to come into maturity as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that famous night with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. Equanimity was the last enlightenment factor to come into perfection as he sat there in his amazing grace, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go of all the formations of body, heart, and mind, breaking through to the great liberation, the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the heart, the mind, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, 
and the balance of heart and mind to experience every kind of manifestation and change in the realm of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling associated with the arising, change, and passing of internal and external formations. The Buddha described what can be called six-limbed equanimity. The equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha sometimes called them, have been destroyed, and who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable and undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And this is from the Buddha. Here, a bhikkhu, a yogi, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither glad nor sad on seeing a visible object with the eye, on hearing an audible sound with the ear. And he goes through all the sense doors, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking in this same way. She or he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness and the great strength and the ease of the heart and the mind to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is on-looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of pleasure and pain, physical and mental pleasure and pain, by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise, on-looking. On-looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism or bias. Equanimity sees things without partiality. One attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is as neither painful nor pleasant feeling. At one point, the Buddha spoke about equanimity as the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and diversion. The heart, the mind, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. The poet T.S. Eliot said it quite beautifully. At the still point, of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. This still point of equanimity, it's a place of protection. And at the same time, it's a place of great spaciousness of mind, great spaciousness of heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Because of the small container, the water will be extremely salty, harsh, undrinkable, 
On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water the size of Gaston Pond, the lake that we pass when we walk the loop here, or in the Rio Grande River, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness that the salt was put into. Life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of heart, of mind, in which we can meet and look on at all of life's experiences, all the internal and external phenomena with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, look on with a specific neutrality. What does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times particularly the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, as well as the arising of various other accompanying states of consciousness, that they are all met, all seen, looked on at evenly through the heart and the mind of equanimity. The function of equanimity as an enlightenment factor is to inhibit partiality. Thus, upekka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. He says, handle even a single leaf of lettuce in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This, in turn, allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation, in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle things and is beneficial to all living beings. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way you would, in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So, how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? When we practice in the light of the, in, in light of the enlightenment factors, when the heart, the mind is tranquil, serene, and this is known, 
When the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is, when the mind isn't listless and idle, and when it's not agitated but is interested and appropriately energized, then one isn't interested. We don't feel impelled to exert or restrain or encourage the mind in any way at this point. The Buddha's metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode is this. One is like a charioteer who looks on with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Or more likely in our case, like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity at a car that is running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. And we're able to see, to see where and what's passing by much more easily. This quality, this factor of mind allows the process of practice the progress of insight to unfold without the habits of mind that stop things up. The various habits of clinging, attachment, and identification create a block, a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of identification and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and not clung to, allowing understanding to deepen and to mature. And as we all know, until equanimity is truly matured, we lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of half of a three-month retreat that I was sitting over at the meditation center, I practiced equanimity in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, one of the divine abidings. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, evenness, neutrality in the heart and in the mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, wow, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. If this was a Zen Sashin, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled in a true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test, Vipassana style. I got a note signed by Sharon Salzberg, who was one of my equanimity teachers, although the note was actually from all five of the three-month teachers. And it was said, um, would you like, we would like you to give the Dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, for a moment, um, equanimity completely flew out the window. My heart felt like it stopped. The old habit of fear flew in. I can't do this. I can't do this now, said my old habit. I've been silent for six weeks and deeply into practice. I can't go up in front of my fellow yogis and talk. Absolutely impossible. And then the heart and the mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in. Ah, 
ah, this is my equanimity test, of course. I can do it, and I want to do it. At that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came over me. Gratitude for the teachers, for the IMS staff, for the teachings and for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. Upeka manifests quieting fear, quieting dislike, resentment. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relation to what we think of as our self, me, mine, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment and attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a true equanimity, There's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly minded indifference. It occurs when we don't clearly see or don't clearly see through the object of our attention with a concentrated mindfulness and investigation and instead are blindly seduced, seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upeka. It's what's called indifference based in ignorance. And this is from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye, or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning karma, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was quite often very direct, very straightforward, and very succinct in his teaching. In a personal story in relationship to this, When I first began living in Taos, New Mexico, quite a number of years ago, I was quite aware of the fact that there were many beautiful handcrafted things in store windows in the few blocks in the center of town. And I would find myself walking along, looking in the windows, quite infatuated with thoughts coming up of, I want this and sometimes thoughts coming up of, I need this. So I decided to make a practice out of walking along these few blocks in the middle of town. I would walk along and look in the windows and watch this process going on in me. Up would come this energy and kind of a magnetic pull 
from these beautiful things in the store windows. And I would move energetically towards it and the feeling of wanting, even sometimes needing would come up and I would just watch it and watch it disappear. And I did this quite often for a few months while I was first living there. And slowly, slowly, it just dissipated. And I was able to walk along, look in the windows, see the beauty, appreciate it, and not feel like I had to have it. It was a great relief. The Dalai Lama tells uh, a story about himself, about passing various shops that sell all kinds of tiny mechanical parts, which is a particular interest and fascination of his. And his very strong inner feeling, he said, of wanting them all. And then all of a sudden realizing that he didn't even know what they were for. And of course, we know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed and inflamed with fear, inflamed with resentment, it isn't possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. And we probably each also know the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed resentment, anger, fear, or disappointment. These contracted states of mind often burning inside ourselves. The pretense of equanimity, the, oh, it doesn't really matter anyways, stance, which is not equanimity, but a kind of indifference which is the near enemy of equanimity, what masquerades as upekka. Upekka is based on attentive, clear presence of mind, not on dullness and indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood nor is it produced again and again by exertion. It's the result of our practice, the result of training the mind, training the heart, and the unfolding and development of the factors of enlightenment that naturally occurs within our practice. So again, just for a few moments, sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisattva. This just about to be Buddha on that now famous night as he was protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation, exploration, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain, the mountain of equanimity. True equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, to meet all of these sometimes severe tests and is able to regenerate its strength from sources within, from the growing development of each of 
and all of the other six factors of enlightenment, along with the development of other qualities and capacities that blossom through our practice, such as confidence, faith, loving-kindness, compassion. There's an amazing practice that was and maybe still is sometimes done by the Hopi Indians that I don't recommend, but that we can take as a metaphor metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is the great strength of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man singing with his eyes closed, climbed up on his crossed legs, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power, protection, and wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced and caught up in states of greed and aversion, and the power of renewing itself only if it's deeply rooted in insight. As an aid, as nutriment for the arising and development of equanimity, The Buddha, of course, offers us some very specific directions. He tells us to listen to, approach, attend to, to recollect and go forth after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, accomplished in sila, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and vision of liberation. He tells us that hearing the Dharma from such people is helpful. And of course, again, he tells us to dwell mindfully and to investigate states. And that if we investigate with care and wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and developed. He goes on to say that when one's mind and heart is uplifted with spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. When the body is tranquil, tranquil one's mind becomes tranquil. tranquil. And we're told that one whose body is tranquil and who's quietly happy in the heart and the mind, the mind is easily concentrated. And that when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. The Buddha tells us that there are some particular conditions in our life that will help towards the arising and development of the enlightenment factor of equanimity. 
maintenance of neutrality toward beings, maintenance of neutrality towards inanimate objects, not spending a lot of time with possessive people, associating with people who maintain neutrality toward beings and inanimate objects. And lastly, he tells us to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of equanimity. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend a little bit of time exploring with you this evening, that as they develop and ripen into insight are the root of equanimity. The first of these is our growing clarity and understanding as to how the vicissitudes of life praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, originate, how they come to be. The understanding that the various experiences we undergo are the result of our karma, the result of our actions in thought, speech, and deed, right here, right now, in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is karma. This is our karma. We're born, we spring out of the womb of karma. And even though we may not like it at times, We are the inalienable owners of our deeds. Just as soon as we've performed any deed with words or actions, we have totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as what we could call our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens to us is the outcome of our own mind and deeds, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind and deeds, not due to some outer, antagonistic, seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it has the power to free us from fear and is thus the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, everything that happens around us and within us say that again. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves What is there to fear? The heart begins to relax. But, of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in speaking wholesome words, 
and in performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. One of the things that's been important to me in understanding karma is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions, to do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice this. It becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. The Buddha, in speaking about himself, tells us, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else can the future bring than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more of a certainty in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and the balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our life. As the refuge of good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the results of deeds might bring us some sorrow or some pain, maybe by the way, via the way others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life or in some surprising or unrecognizable ways. And even if sometimes the results that occur are not what we expected, not what we had in mind, results that are maybe contrary to what we might think our motivation is. Many years ago, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me, at appropriate times, she would say, this isn't what I had in mind. (laughs) Which would always stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, a close look at my expectations and my motivations. And most importantly, in that moment, to simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that particular time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. Maybe sometimes quite a stern and in a certain way a demanding teacher. And yet potentially a truthful and very well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. Relative equanimity gives us the strength to endure when we need to endure and to see clearly when that's what's being called for. In befriending suffering, by looking at it directly and clearly, we have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The teachings of karma and the understanding therein 
can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves from repeatedly being born, reborn into the realm of suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and the delusion therein, and our habitual, habitual tendency to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and our healthy resistance, a disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. So the first insight that is the basis of equanimity is the understanding of karma. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta, no self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate, solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life throw us into the realm of suffering over and over again. I, I've lost. What's mine has been lost. I've failed. I've been praised. This pleasure is mine. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is shaken in the delusion of the identification of me, mine, I am. Unshakable equanimity of heart, of mind, is established by giving up, relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine. And we begin with the small things, which it's easy to detach oneself from and gradually work up to the possessions, goals, and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught here at the Forest Refuge was for two months, and I was the first visiting teacher here. I was here long enough to really settle in. And yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in, the same house I'm in now, isn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got here, there was no telephone in the house. And it was difficult. For instance, when I wanted to um, check or send email, I had to carry my laptop over to the Yogi telephone room in the administration building. I'm sure at least some of you um, are familiar with this room. So I lobbied for a telephone, which in moments felt like it was for me. There was a degree of tension and stress in this attitude. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many others who would be using the house over many, many years. At one point, I was told it was okayed. A phone would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown. 
At that point, there was a quick letting go. No more thoughts about it occurred. I relaxed and truly felt that it didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not, as it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. It was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of the house. And Jeannie, the housekeeper, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone. I noticed it's such a difference, a different experience in the heart with this. Not the subtle contraction of um, something being mine, for being for me. There was an openness, a spaciousness. No contraction, no clinging in the choosing. So the small things first. And working up to giving up letting go, relinquishing such thoughts of self, beginning with objects of seeming minor importance, with what we think is ours, and then beginning to let go of, relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we are identified with as who we are, who we think we are, our personality, so to say. It's, it's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. Ajahn Sumedho shares a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? even including those emotions and aversions which we regard as the center of our being. There's a particular teaching that the Buddha offered his son Rahula, which is really a wonderful illustration of this, and I'd like to be a conduit for this teaching. The story is that while Rahula, the Buddha's 18-year-old son, was following the Buddha on a particular day as they were on their way to the village for alms rounds, he noted uh, with admiration the physical perfection of the master and reflected that he himself was of similar appearance, thinking, I too am handsome like my father, the Blessed One. The Buddha's form is beautiful and so is mine. Well, the Buddha read Rahula's mind. He read his thoughts and decided to admonish him at once before such vain thoughts led him to greater difficulties. So the Buddha framed his advice in terms of contemplating the body as neither self nor the possession of a self. Rahula, who felt rightly scolded by his father, decided to sit down under a tree on the side of the road to reflect on the admonishment of the teaching rather than continuing on into the village with the Buddha, though he very soon got distracted in conversation with another bhikkhu who was passing by. The following teaching teaching was given to Rahula by the Buddha the next day in order to show the quality of impartiality, equanimity, in order to dispel Rahula's attachment to the body, which had not yet been removed by the brief instruction on the egolessness of material, uh, egolessness of material form that the Buddha had given him on the previous day. The Buddha uses the four great elements 
in his teaching on equanimity as both metaphor and as a direct teaching in relationship to the body itself, simply being a composite of the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. And he also adds the element of space, meaning by this all the openings, holes, apertures in the body internally, and all the space around everywhere externally. And this is the teaching. Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that. So too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Rahula, develop meditation that is like water. For when you develop meditation that is like water, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people wash clean things and dirty things in water, and he goes on in the same way, the water is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted. Ruhula, develop meditation that is like fire. For when you develop meditation that is like fire, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as fire burns clean things and dirty things, fire is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, etc. Rahula, develop meditation that is like air. Just as the air blows on clean things and dirty things, etc. And the last piece of this teaching, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Essentially, this is our practice. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust, hatred, fear, or grief? Thus, the teaching and practice of anatta as our guide along the path to liberation, our guide along the path to perfect equanimity. Equanimity, the perfectly unshakable balance of mind, heart, is rooted in insight. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality. In its perfection, it's not cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but out of a fullness or completeness of understanding. At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity and will develop into an equanimity that is a manifestation of the highest insight. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, mature, 
concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with an imbalance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. All of these occurring at that point in a single taste, the single taste of deliverance, awakening, enlightenment, liberation from the kilesas, liberation from the cankers, liberation from suffering, the mind, the heart deliverance of equanimity is the escape from greed. At that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the defilements, as they're sometimes called, and insight knowledge into the advantage of purification. The insight at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one, which is all manifesting through insight due to onlooking equanimity, which is now absolute equanimity. The Buddha termed absolute equanimity unworldly or holy equanimity. The mind, the heart of an awakened one is likened to a clear, well-cut crystal. And because it's clear, without stains, it fully absorbs all the rays of light and sends them out again, intensified by the power and the purity of its concentrated energy. The crystal can't be tainted by the colors of the rays. Its hardness can't be pierced. Its perfectly harmonious structure can't be disturbed. In its purity and strength, the crystal remains unchanged. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not an increase or decrease of the great ocean is to be seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. The equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. It's absolute simply because it clings to nothing. And this is our possibility. As we practice, We know when the enlightenment factor of equanimity is in us. We know when it's absent. We know how it arises and how its development comes about. And so we sit. Maybe not always like the Buddha did on that night 2,600 years ago. But we sit. We practice. With great sincerity, and diligence. We sit with growing understanding and the blossoming of insight. We sit with aspiration and determination. And inevitably, each of the factors of enlightenment continue to develop within us and will, without doubt, eventually deepen and mature. I'd like to close the talk with two short pieces from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her or him? For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. 
Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.